Here's the deal. Uh, we've been going through the minor prophets. And we've still got a ways to go through the minor prophets. So we're going to take a, a break from the minor prophets for this week and next week. And then the two weeks that we're not here, we'll pick back up in January. And our anticipation is to finish the minor prophets before summer. And then we're going to start a series on basic theology. Uh, I think that that seems to be uh, uh, what is on the probable board for us next. But I wanted to take this week and next week and talk about Christmas and do it maybe from a little bit of a different angle. Now, I don't know what Christmas means to you. Different people have different ways they celebrate Christmas. Uh, This yard one, uh, let's see, this is not working. Brent rescue please let's try it again okay hold on we have the technology we can't make it work Uh, it doesn't advance so while Brent fixes this I'll do the old digital advance bam they won yard of the year that's pretty good isn't it oh No, no, this whole thing's all goofy. Oh, I'm doing it left-handed, my mistake. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to make this work. You know, Christmas is a lot of things to a lot of people. For some people, it's lights. For some people, it's Santa and all that 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 means. Uh, Whoops, (laughs) this is crazy. For some people, there's this new thing, Elf on a Shelf. Elf on a Shelf was not a thing when I was growing up, but Elf on a Shelf is uh, something now. Of course, we've got Christmas trees. How many of you have a Christmas tree up? Mark Wilkie, how many trees this year? Stopped counting at what? 20? Uh, Food. How many of you have a traditional Christmas day or a Christmas Eve meal? How many of you have lights on outside? All right. How many of you are going to give presents to people? I'm giving Becky a new dog. She doesn't know that yet. So keep it on the down. I didn't see you came in, Becky. Um, Christmas gifts. We give gifts during Christmas. How many of you are going to sing Christmas carols this year? We all sing Christmas carols. Uh, If you want to do it, uh, uh, Tuesday night, uh, as Brent said, 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, we're going to do carols by candlelight in uh, uh, in the Stone Chapel. I went back and I thought, okay, I want to do something for Christmas this year in here, but I want to do something different than I've done before. And so I went back and looked at the previous lessons. How many of you were in here when I taught what we called life group Greek. Anybody? Oh, a number of you. And that's where I taught, I don't know, 15 or so Greek lessons. And I would teach you a Greek lesson and then I would teach you uh, uh, the way it illuminates a passage of scripture, if you understand that. And, and 
uh, I was uh, uh, worried at the time that people might not pay attention, so I started experimenting with comic strips, and, and I tried to write my own. And I was inspired by comic strips that I read each day, and one of the ones I read each day is Monty. And here's Monty singing Christmas carols with uh, his uh, robot DT type guy. Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from Thwack. I thought for sure a novelty song would win him over. Maybe one that doesn't involve the tragic, brutal death of a beloved, you know, whatever. And so I got inspired and I was writing my own. And I don't know if you all remember this or not. I called my comic strip The Greek Geek. Hey, geek, what did Adam say on the day before Christmas? Anybody? It's Christmas, Eve. Okay, I never made it as a cartoonist. But it got me thinking reflectively on Christmas as I went back through these things and I thought about things. And I decided a great Christmas lesson that I've never taught before that would be a good one for us today is Christmas through the ages. So we know what Christmas is like for us here today. But what would Christmas have been like in days gone by? You know, the Christmas Day happened over 2,000 years ago. And what, what would it have been like if we could get into a time capsule and go back and watch the way Christmas has been celebrated through the ages? So for today, I grouped the ages into three different categories. I thought, let's talk about Christmas during the Roman times. And then let's talk about Christmas during the medieval times. By the way, <laughs> Steve Taylor, you knew it. I knew you would get it. I didn't know if anybody else would, so I did this for Steve Taylor. Roman times, Roman numerals. Medieval time, medieval numerals. Just saying. And then, of course, the third is modern time with modern numerals. <laughs> So with that pathetic use of an hour and a half of my time, <laughs> let's honor it and let's start with Roman times. Now, this is an interesting thing because I grew up in a church where we always wanted to try and be as carefully biblical as we could be. And so Christmas always threw people into a bit of a tizzy, not tizzy, but a, a bit of a, an analysis time, analysis mode, because there's no record that the first church celebrated the birth of Christ. You can read the Bible from, well, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, but Matthew 1 to, to Revelation 22, you can read about the birth of Christ. But you never find any incident of the church celebrating it. And so it brings up a question that, that a lot of people ask as, as I was growing up and some still ask today. If Christmas was not celebrated by the first church, does that make it wrong to celebrate Christmas? Well... 
I can tell you that if we go back to the establishment of the church around 33 AD and we want to know what happened on December 25th, the answer is probably not much different than December 24th or 23rd or 22nd. But does that make it wrong for us to celebrate something that was not set up in Scripture as a celebration festival time to the Lord. I don't think it does. I don't think it's wrong at all to celebrate December 25th as the birth of Christ. I think we should do it intelligently, and I think we should do it deliberately, and I think we should do it carefully, but I don't think it's wrong to celebrate it, even though we know Christ wasn't born on December 25th. It's just the day we celebrate even though we can find some roots of December 25th that come from pagan religions and rituals. It depends on how we celebrate and what we do. But let me give you an idea of why I think it's even biblical to celebrate Christmas. And to do that, I want us to talk about Hanukkah. Now, this year, Hanukkah falls on the same time period. It's, it's about an eight-day celebration, but it falls during the same time period as Christmas, the end of Hanukkah and Christmas. And that's unusual. It doesn't always happen that way, but it does this year. Now, I don't know how well you know your Hanukkah. If you know your Hanukkah, you've got the Hanukkah candles. There are nine of them. You celebrate eight days of Hanukkah and you light a candle on each of the eight days. You say, why are there nine? The middle candle, the shamash, is the servant candle and it's lit to, to light the others. So you got the servant candle that lights the others. And there are lots of traditions that go with Hanukkah, but Hanukkah is based on something that's also not found in Old Testament scriptures. Hanukkah is based on something that happened in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you'll find uh, some, some history of it in the Apocrypha, but not in the canonical biblical text. So what happened? If you go to Rome, anybody in here ever been to Rome? A bunch of you travel savants. If you go to Rome... You can go see the Arch of Titus. Now, Titus later becomes Roman emperor, but uh, the Arch celebrates his achievements in Roman leadership, including when he was the general that conquered Jerusalem and squashed a Jewish rebellion in the first century. And if you look carefully, you'll see on the reliefs this procession coming out of Jerusalem when he conquered the temple. And you'll see he's, that, that, that his, his troops, as part of the booty that they captured, are carrying the candelabra from the temple. And that was the seven, it would hold little bowls, that would, lamps, that, that, it would hold seven lamps. And those lamps would have oil in them and wicks. And the wicks would burn, the oil would burn, and that's your candelabra. Now, this was part of the temple. Um, I'm, not, I'm not finding words 
clearly this morning. What, what is an extra, uh, one of the temple accoutrements is what I want to say, but one of the temple uh, instruments. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that was set up at the time of Moses. If you read the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 9, it says even the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lamp stand and the table and the bread of the presence. Now, if we were reading that in the Greek, we'd have it and we would see this word lugnia right here, which is the translation for lampstand. If we were reading it in Hebrew... If you got a Hebrew New Testament, you would see it, and it's ha the menorah. That's the menorah. That's the lampstand. And so what happened is, between the time of the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was a fellow named Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world back then. And when he died, his empire was divided into four. And two of the parts used to fight over Jerusalem and Israel. And who was going to get it? And in the process, they tried to take Greek culture all over the world. And so Greek becomes the predominant language. And Greek theology starts taking over in various places throughout the world. And you've got this set of Jewish people who are honoring their Jewish God in the Jewish temple. And the Greek influence says, no, that's not what we're going to do. You need to fit in. And so the Jewish temple is used and desecrated to worship pagan gods. Among the desecration, they sacrifice a pig on the altar, which is considered most unholy. Now, there is a rebellion that happens in the 160s. And that rebellion is named after these brothers, the Maccabee brothers. And the Maccabean revolt starts in about 167 B.C. And even though the the Maccabees died in the 160s, I think, the revolt continues till 141 B.C. And in that revolt, the Jews were able to recapture Jerusalem and reestablish themselves. And they went to rededicate the temple. And in the process of rededicating the temple, they tried to set up the instruments of worship. And they tried to purify those. And among those was the lampstand. Now, these lampstands would have, um, let's see, lampstands would have like these, this is your lampstand. And you say, well, that's not very even. They weren't great uh, craftsmen. They often had them askew. That's not my drawing. That's just, uh, you know, 
shoddy third century BC workmanship. But they'd have these little cups at the end. They didn't just run over to the store and get candles. They'd have these cups at the end. And those cups would hold these lamps. And the lamps would hold oil. So you put your oil in the lamp. And then you've got this wick that comes out of the lamp. And you light the wick. And the wick gives you the flame because it's the oil that's burning. And under the Mosaic Law in Exodus, it says you are to use olive oil. But not olive oil that comes out of pressing the olives. Olive oil that comes out of beating them. And to beat an olive and to get olive oil under the Old Testament provisions of how you do it takes about eight days. So they get their oil, they canvas for the holy oil to use in the holy menorah in the rededication of the temple. And as they, they do that, they, they realize they don't have enough holy oil. They got enough to burn for maybe a day. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to burn for a day, but we're not going to violate the law and just use unholy oil. We're trying to dedicate the temple and use holiness to do it. And so they start beating the olives so that eight days later they'll have some oil. And lo and behold, the one day supply of oil that they figured they'd just use till it ran out, never ran out. And so they were able to keep lit the dedication lampstands during those eight days. And Judaism began to celebrate those eight days as eight days showing that God will provide even in the most dire circumstances, even when you don't think it possible, if you walk holy before God, God will take care of the consequences. And so with that lesson, Israel started celebrating every year at the same time. It's the 25th of Kiz, I don't remember the name of the Jewish month. My Jewish calendar's off. But it winds up falling in December almost every time. They would celebrate those eight days. And that's why they light a candle each day. Now you say, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, I want you to look at something for a moment. This was called the Feast of Lights because they were lighting the candles. It's also called the Feast of Dedication because they were dedicating the temple back. Now, that's not an Old Testament celebration. That's, that has nothing in the Old Testament talking about it. That's a celebration of events that God did in between the Testaments. Here's the key. Even though it's not an Old Testament celebration, Jesus celebrated it. If you go back and read John chapter 10... You'll see at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Hanukkah. At that time, Hanukkah took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, December. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple. He's there in the celebration. In the colonnade of Solomon. It's that outer court. So the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I mean, it can't be any clearer. So Jesus uses Hanukkah and that time period to talk about his mission and to talk about the work of God. He takes that celebration that's not in the Bible, but is still in the culture and in the movement, and uses it to proclaim the glories of God and the Messiah. And so, does it make it wrong to celebrate Christmas that we're celebrating something that's not celebrated in the Bible? Uh, No, it depends on how we're doing it. If we're using something culturally that's happening to honor God and to point people to God and to illustrate what God's doing, that's a marvelous thing. Now, some people get real hung up and say, but we know that Jesus was probably born in the spring because shepherds were in their fields and shepherds don't go to their fields uh, 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 in, in December in that part of Israel. And so, uh, and, and we've got other evidences. And I've taught classes before upon the, uh, about the two basic theories of how we got to December 25th as our day of celebration. I'm not going to rehash that. But I am going to tell you, I don't think that we need to get so hung up on dates. Dates are useful. God made times and seasons. That's apparent from Genesis. And it's important that we recognize times and seasons. And God gives us dates. And he gave us days of the week so that we would have patterns. But there's nothing magical and mystical about where the planet is vis-a-vis the sun in terms of what we're celebrating and why. I mean, that, that December 25th is when earth is right here versus the sun and other stars, as opposed to right here versus the sun and other stars. That's astrology issues. We're not into that. That doesn't matter. What matters here is that we've got a time and a season where we recognize what God has done in humanity, which is of the greatest of importance. It's the beginning of that earthly ministry that culminates in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, an event in which we have the opportunity to share. And so by the time you get through, you know, if you look at Mark, say, as the first gospel, Mark doesn't spend much time talking about the nativity. You can go to Matthew, another early gospel, Matthew's not too wrapped up in it, but by the time you get to Luke's gospel, Luke goes into excruciating detail about the birth of Christ. I think some of that's because Luke, as a doctor, would have been more inquisitive about things like the virgin birth. Luke, as a doctor, would be more readily able to converse with women And to get their stories at a time where most Jewish men would not discuss things with women who were not family members. 
certainly things so private, yet a doctor would. So I think that there are other examples. But if you look at Luke, Luke's the one who's got the story and that, that of the angels appearing, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And so you've got the proclamation of the Messiah. By the way, one of my Jewish friends said to me that one of his biggest impediments to ever believing Jesus as Messiah is the fact that when Jesus comes, there will be peace. He says, Jesus has come and there's not peace. And it wasn't until he changed his understanding to, to realize the peace that Jesus brought is peace in here and between us and God. That's the peace that counts. Jesus himself said there's always going to be wars and rumors of wars. But he brings peace among those with whom he's pleased. He brings peace to those who want peace with God. And it's a peace that passes understanding, as Paul writes to the Philippians. So the early church is cognizant of the birth of Christ, deeming it important enough to put into the narratives of the gospel. And so it's not that the early church is just numb to it. And you'll also see early heretical writings that aren't biblical, that talk about the childhood and the birth of Jesus. The infancy gospel of Thomas is one example, but there are others. Because the the church was interested in these things. It just wasn't a Christmas celebration. Now, a lot of our history for those early years is, is not just easily accessed. We've got good history in the writings of the apostolic fathers, but with Christmas, we really roll into it after Constantine the emperor makes Christianity the the empire's religion. And so if we go to the mid to late 300s, you start seeing Christmas in a much bigger way. Now, this is a picture of St. Mary Maggiore, uh, which is a church in Rome, And it was built in the 400s. It was started in the 400s. It wasn't finished until the 1700s. Building took a lot. (laughs) Bill took a lot longer to build that than we're going to finish on the learning center. Agreed? Okay. That was uh, 432 AD to like 1740 or something. But... During the 300s, the later 300s, is when Christmas switched to being celebrated December 25th. Before that, it was celebrated different dates by different religious groups, and, and some still celebrate different dates today. But if you were looking at the main church, as we would call it, in the 300s, late 300s, they would have three masses or three services. The first one would be at Christmas Eve. The second one would, um, um, would be at midnight. It was a midnight mass. And then they'd have two the following day. And that's what they would celebrate. And they would have uh, different things. They would sing. They would do all these different things. But it was a monumental day, a day of repentance. And so if we look at a bishop north of uh, Rome, Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose of Milan from 339 to 397. He was a bishop. Theodosius was the emperor. Theodosius was a Christian, but Theodosius had a hot temper. And he heard about some Germans that had slaughtered some kingdom people, I think it was in Thessaloniki. 
And so he just goes in there and he wipes out the Germans. And Ambrose was very upset with him. And Ambrose excommunicates him from the church, excommunicates the emperor of the Roman Empire, sends him this letter. Listen, august emperor, you have zeal for the faith. I own that. You have fear of God. I confess that. But you have a vehemence of temper, which if soothed, may speedily be changed into compassion. But if inflamed, becomes so violent that you can scarcely restrain it. I would to God that those about you, even if they don't moderate, would at least refrain from stimulating it, prodding you on in your anger. This vehemence I have preferred secretly to commend to your consideration rather than run the risk of stirring it up by a public act. I've tried to talk to you about it privately. You wouldn't talk to me. You wouldn't do anything about it. So I'm just going to excommunicate you. And Theodosius' attitude is, well, fine. I don't need you in your stinking church anyway. Until Christmas. And by the time Christmas gets there, he realizes, he being the emperor Theodosius, that this is not right and he's got to make it right. And so Christmas is when he goes forward publicly and confesses his sin and repents and is restored to the church. Um, Christmas has a powerful influence for good, even though it wasn't celebrated by the first church. If we focus on the Christian message. Now, there was a lawyer. He was a Spanish lawyer. He habló español. Not really Spanish, wasn't the language yet. It's Latin. Um, his name was Aurelius Prudentius Clemens. And he was a lawyer out in Spain who around 403 goes to Rome. And becomes a Christian. And starts writing poetry. And he writes a Christmas poem. And publishes it in 405. The Christmas poem is entitled. Corde Natus Ex Parentis. Which you might know. Of the father's love begotten. Corde is love or heart. Natus is born, begotten, out of the parent, but it's masculine, out of the father. Of the father's love begotten. Now, I don't know, he wrote it as a poem. The melody I've got dates from a few hundred years later. But would y'all like to hear it?
And the words are profound. Let every tongue proclaim. Let us all sing in unison about the glories of the Lord. I love that. Well, so at the time, Christmas sermons were also being preached. One of my favorite Christmas sermons was by a guy named Casarius. He was the Bishop of Arles from 502 to 542. And I'll give you just a flavoring of it. Through the divine mercy, beloved brethren, the day on which we long to celebrate the birthday of our Lord and Savior is almost at hand. Therefore, I pray and advise that with God's help, we labor as much as we can, so that on that day we may be able to approach the altar of our Lord with a pure and upright conscience, a clean heart, and a chaste body. Now, I went around before class and I asked a bunch of people, are you ready for Christmas? And I had all like 80% were saying yes, 20% were saying no, and they were answering the way I was asking, which is, have you done your shopping? Have you figured out what you're going to do? Are you blah, blah, blah? You know, and, and they were, we were engaging in it. But there's a whole nother, if I had asked that question in 500 AD, the question would not have been taken of, have, have you done your shopping? Which is what I meant. Instead, the question would have been, have you prepared your heart and mind for Christmas? For a lot of people, it was a time of fasting beforehand. So um, so that on that day, we may be able to approach the altar of our Lord with a pure and upright conscience, a clean heart, and a chaste body. Although it's fitting for us to be adorned and distinguished by good works at all times... Still, on the day of the Lord's birth in particular, our good deeds, as he himself said in the gospel, ought to shine before men. Consider, I beseech you, brethren, a powerful or noble man who wishes to celebrate either his own birthday or that of his son. With what great effort he looks for anything disgraceful in his house. He basically goes and gets everything cleaned. Even paints the house if he needs to, he says later in the sermon. He does everything to make it really nice and special. How much more should we be preparing ourselves to celebrate the coming of the Lord? It's a powerful sermon. That gives you a flavor of Christmas during Roman times. Now, we've got to accelerate because we've got to get forward. So I want to talk to you about medieval Christmases. And by this time, let's go to the venerable Bede. Now, the venerable Bede was sent to England to help uh, Christianity in England. And one of the things that he wrote is an ecclesiastical history, a church history of England. And he recognized that Christmas had been very valuable at helping to convert the pagan Angles. Angles, A-N-G-L-E-S, from which Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Heritage comes from. England, Angles, got it? 
Here's what he said. The angles quickly accepted Christianity because of their long tradition of Modronect. Modronect, uh, old Anglo-Saxon, Modra is mother, Necht is night. Modronect, uh, the mother's night. And it was a celebration around December 25th that was a celebration of the end uh, or, or the turning of winter. And so the kind of close to the winter solstice, the, the turning of winter, the days will start lengthening again and summer and spring or spring and summer are on the way. One of the things they did to celebrate is they burned a Yule log, they being the angles in their pagan Christianity. Now you might think of a Yule log as just some nice little fireplace log. That's maybe what it is to you. I personally am a fan of the Yule log that's like this. But the Yule log back then, they'd take like some honking tree, cut it down and haul it into the house, and they'd stick the end of the tree into the fire. And then as the fire continued to burn over the next few days, as they celebrate, they just keep shoving the tree in further and further and further until they burn the whole thing. That was their Yule log. Another thing they would do, they'd kill a pig. And they'd roast the head, roasted boar's head, big for the angles. And as Christianity came in, those are traditions that they had from their pagan celebration that they continued doing. And so they become part of the Christmas tradition within England especially. Now, how many of you went to the Christmas Spectacular here? It was during medieval times that Christmas plays and pageants really became the thing. And so, for example... Um, well, let me see if I've got it up here. This is St. Gall. Uh, St. Gall is in Switzerland, Gallen, Switzerland. And there was an abbey here that went back, I think, to the 700s. But this is one of the early medieval Christmas plays that we've got. And it's pretty cool to watch how they did it. This is uh, what they had to say. This is, these are the stage instructions. How many of you are in the Christmas Spectacular or have been? A number of you. These are the instructions. On the nativity of the Lord at Mass, let there be ready two deacons who are wearing their vestments. And they're going to be behind the altar. And one of them, they're going to be saying, Whom seek ye in the manger, say ye shepherds. And then when they do that, let two of the cantors in the choir answer. The Savior Christ the Lord, a child wrapped in swaddling clothes according to the angelic word. And then the deacons say, Present here is the little one with Mary, his mother, of whom Isaiah the prophet foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son, and do ye say and announce that he is born. Then let the cantor lift up his voice and say, Alleluia, Alleluia. Now we know indeed that Christ is born on earth, of whom sing ye all with the prophet. Unto us a child is born. And so there's an 11th century Christmas play. Now, if we go forward to St. Francis of Assisi, St. Francis of Assisi uh, in Italy, of course, uh, is, is toward the end of his life, but uh, he's still got some years to go. He's toward the end of his life, and he is going to make a visit during the Christmas season to Greccio, Italy. And so he writes ahead 
to the, the, his buddy, John Giovanni. John, for our purposes. Okay? He writes ahead and he says, John, I've been thinking about my PowerPoint for the Christmas service. I'd like something visual for the people to be able to more readily identify. So here's what I'd like you to do. Before I get there, can you get some hay? And let's set it up around the church. And then get a donkey and get, and he had a list of animals. Get those animals and we're going to have them there too. And we're going to have, we're going to recreate the manger scene. And they do so. And it catches on like wildfire. In part because it's just a really cool way to identify in a visual way with what happened at the time of Christ's arrival. It did not hurt that miracles were ascribed to the hay. Supposedly after that first nativity scene was done, women who were having trouble in child labor just get some of the hay from that first manger scene and stick it on the woman and presto, the baby comes out and the mom's healthy. But those are later reports of miracles I I was not there to attest. But I can tell you this, two years after the death of St. Francis, in a, a biography that was written of him, the following was said about that first manger scene. Simplicity was honorable. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended. And Grecio was made, were made, a new Bethlehem. It's kind of cool. Now, there was songs still being written. There was an 1100 song that we know of today, The Friendly Beasts. Want to hear it? All right, this is 1100's Christmas music. Okay, I got to stop because we're going to run out of time. 
but you get the idea. I mean, this fits in with what Francis was trying to do in that era, and that is show that the animals even gave their best and that the animals offered. And then the sermon point of it all is, is do we bring our best to Jesus and do we offer it to him? And so that would have been Christmas in the 1100s. Now, we get to the 1300s and we get to one of my favorite songs, Resonate in Laudibus. And this is one I've, I've had to try to put an English translation up here as it goes along. But I want you to hear it. This is the 1300s. If you were reading it up here, it starts the R as part of that first word, resonate in laudibus, um, cum, and then it comes down here to the second verse. These are different verses. And so I've got a recording of the first verse here for you to give you an idea of what it, it, it is. Let's see what you think. Um, it was interesting during the medieval times in England, for example, a real transition happened around 1000 to 1100 AD as we're starting to pull into the Renaissance. Um, Before 1000 AD, almost all of the Christmas celebrations during the medieval times were done by the clergy and the monks and the nuns and the abbeys and the monasteries. The common people didn't really go to church and celebrate Christmas. And it's only around the 1,000s, and that that doesn't mean that the common people didn't have their own celebrations, but we don't really know what they were. Because they were illiterate, they couldn't read and write, and the people who were literate weren't too interested in writing up what the other people were doing. But once you get to about one. 1050, right into that time range, all of a sudden, you start seeing a much greater emphasis on Christmas among the laity, among the non-clergy, and they start being included. And so the manger scenes, for example, and the songs, they start being songs and, and, and teachings for everybody, something that had been lost since the 500s. And so the the church starts moving into Christmas becoming something more common. If you go to England, for example, uh, you've got in England uh, the the masses of people, the, the large groups of the common people will participate in a fast going up to Christmas and then participate in huge food. And they would have a massive feast on Christmas Day. And so you start seeing that transition And then the church takes a new transition once you reach the Reformation age. 
Because there's a group who says, wait a minute, Christmas isn't celebrated in the New Testament. We shouldn't be celebrating it today. It's a pagan holiday. And all of that stuff starts happening around the, Re- around the Reformation period. So um, uh, as you take that then and you jettison forward to today, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but today within the church at large, Christmas is celebrated as part of a season called Advent. And the Advent season is one, uh, Adventus in the Latin means arrival. And the focus of Advent in the church today is that during the Christmas season, we should be looking at three different focuses of the arrival of Christ. We should be looking at what the arrival of Christ was in Bethlehem. Celebrate that. Honor that. See what it was. But let's also celebrate the arrival of Christ in each of our lives individually. And so not just Christ came into the world, but Christ came into my life. And then the third focus during the Advent season is that he will come again. In fact, one of the most famous Christmas hymns, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come, is a hymn written about his second coming that is to come in the future. So, so that is the current focus in terms of Christianity in the church at large today. And the celebrations are built around that. But that's a wonderful thing to celebrate. And I've got some scriptures and we don't have time for them. So instead, I'm going to hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, just look what you, oh, do you see what you missed there? Threw some Hebrew up there for you, Weston. Uh, Evid Adonai. Um, Yeah. Boy, that's just, ah, sorry. Look at this, look at this, man. When when did you last jump for joy? See, you celebrate Jesus coming into your life, you get to jump for joy. Because when he comes into your life, he takes those dark days and he makes them bright. And it's not simply because of what happened in Bethlehem. It's because that started what would happen later on the cross. That allows us to move from death to life. And so this is why uh, uh, when the Holy Spirit inside Elizabeth and John the Baptist, the baby leaps for joy. We leap for joy at the presence of God. At the coming of God. We should leap for joy. We of all people understand the joyfulness of the season. Because Christ not only was born in the manger. But he's been born in my heart. And he will come again. So we've got every reason to leap for joy. We've got every reason to celebrate. Yes we can celebrate December 25th. But we should be celebrating all year long. That there is a time where the the world at large will focus on the birth of Christ. We've got a special opportunity. It's the world ripe for the pickings. It's the world in a position to hear the message of Jesus that they wouldn't ordinarily hear. And if we don't take advantage of that, shame on us. Because we should rightly break into song. This is who we are. I want to tell you about next week. And then we've got points for home. Next week. Kind of stoked. So this was Christmas through the ages. Next week, our last week for the year. I want to do Christmas around the world. So 
what would happen if we were celebrating Christmas in Europe this year or in Australia or in the underground church in China? What would happen if we were celebrating it in Africa, in South America? Let's see what would happen as we celebrate Christmas around the world and compare the different ways it's celebrated. And we'll do that next week. Uh, But for now, here are your points for home. And I want to take them off of that biographical note of St. Francis. Simplicity was honorable. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended as a new Bethlehem was born. Look at that for a moment. Simplicity. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Jesus had a very simple set of instructions for us. Jesus' birth was not a complicated list of instructions. I mean, you look at the birth of our kids. You say, well, yeah, I mean, who knows when a woman's going into labor. Well, I got to tell you, you still, you get the bags ready. You get the nursery ready. You get, I mean, there's elaborate stuff. You have showers, uh, and not the kind that you and I take once a week, whether we need it or not. I mean, real shower, you know, baby showers. You, there are elaborate plannings for a birth. Jesus had a very simple birth. They, they didn't even have a place to stay for it. So simplicity, and God provided. Nothing got, went wrong. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is something honorable about simplicity. And we can get so wrapped up in all of the accoutrements and commercialism of Christmas that we forget the beauty of the simplicity and the honor of it. Um, Poverty was exalted. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I almost put that passage up there. But poverty was exalted. There's something profound about saying that your treasure is in God and in heaven and not the things of this earth. And we can't lose sight of that. If, If we do, we've turned Christmas into... A commercial holiday. And then humility was commended. I think that humility is one of the most used words in the Bible for what we ought to be. I grabbed just the James 4 passage. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. The opposite is true. Be proud before the Lord and he will bring you down. And those are lessons that we get as we look through Christmas throughout the ages. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus and uh, hope to see you back next week for Christmas around the world. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your coming. Thank you for your coming into this world to save the world from sin. I thank you for coming into my life, giving me a new creation, making me a new creation, giving me victory over death. And Lord, I eagerly await your coming again. May this Christmas season be one in which you are honored in simple yet profound ways where our investment is in you, 
Our treasure is in you. As we seek you with humility. In Jesus we pray, amen.